Our final event in this room for the day is a fireside chat with Bruce Friedrich. Uh, Bruce is the executive director of the Good Food Institute, a nonprofit organization that focuses on the use of markets and food technology to displace the products of industrialized animal agriculture. In 2016, GFI was selected by animal charity evaluators as one of the three best philanthropic investments for animal protection. Paul Shapiro is the Vice President of Policy at the Humane Society of the United States, the founder of Compassion Over Killing, and the author of a forthcoming book on the clean meat movement. Welcome, Paul and Bruce. Uh, First, another round of applause for our friend Lewis Bollard. Great talk, Lewis. Is he even still here? Yes, okay, good. Uh, Bruce, uh, many people in the room know you and your background. Obviously, Lewis embarrassed you by talking about you dressing up in chicken costumes. But so that people know who you are beyond the bio, just tell us a little bit about what GFI is doing. Then we'll get into the meat, clean or plant-based of the matter. Uh, Thank you, Paul. Uh, So the Good Food Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we use markets and food technology to transform agriculture, to move, to shift consumers away from uh, the products of industrialized animal agriculture and toward better alternatives. So we're basically using the concepts of behavioral economics to create the products that are better in terms of the environment, in terms of sustainability, in terms of global health, um, and obviously in terms of animal protection. And the thing that Lewis was talking about Uh, at the end, um, in response to my question, uh, it had to do with the fact that when you ask somebody how much do you care about the environment or how much do you care about animal protection or how much do you care about whatever, um, large numbers of people will say that they care about those issues. But if you actually go to even a Whole Foods um, or even a a, Chipotle, which attempts to have sort of higher welfare animal products, if you go to places... You know, really pretty much any place, and you look at what people are eating um, and you ask people why they're eating it, 100% of people, 100% of these people in these room, in this room, 100% of people in any grocery store or restaurant, uh, they're taking into account price. They're taking into account taste. They may not be explicitly thinking about convenience, but if the product's not there, they're not eating it. Um, and very few of them are taking into account ethical considerations. So the Good Food Institute is is single-mindedly focused on figuring out the best possible ways that we can create the products that compete with industrialized animal agriculture on the basis of the factors that actually dictate consumer price. So we're focused on creating plant-based meat and clean meat that is price competitive and taste competitive, um, and as we move forward, also convenient for consumers. Thanks. Uh, so let me just start then with a basic question. Why is this even an EA issue? Why is animal agriculture something that EAs ought to be concerned about in your mind? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a wide range of, of reasons that uh, people who care about effective altruism should be concerned about animal agriculture. So um, an awful lot of people who are EA are concerned about existential threats. There are multiple existential threats that are related to industrialized animal agriculture, just a couple of them. Um, If you Google, if you go online and Google China and the end of antibiotics or the end of working antibiotics, um, you will be terrified 
there are, if you just Google the end of working antibiotics and look at what's happening in the United States, it's pretty terrifying. But um, if you look at some of the antibiotics that are being used in farm animal agriculture in China, it becomes even worse. So you're looking at um, antibiotics, which of course are used to treat all kinds of things, everything from a, a sore throat to an infection to just about everything. Um, if they stop working, we enter into a world in which you cut your finger uh, and you end up dying, or you get um, a cough and you end up dying. Um, and that's because even just in the United States, more than 70% of all antibiotics that are used are fed to farm animals. And it's not to feed to farm animals who are sick. It's to feed to farm animals because they're kept in such hideous conditions that if they were not uh, fed these low-level doses of antibiotics, massive numbers of them would die. So they feed them the antibiotics for that, and they're also growth-promoting, but that's sort of a, an ancillary benefit. Um, you can look at something like bird flu, which Michael Greger has written about. And if you Google uh, Michael Greger and bird flu, you can read about the possibility of, again, millions and millions of people dying from some sort of global pandemic. So EA um, looks at what are the things that we can do, how can we be most effective with our philanthropy, and how can we be most effective with our lives, um, and industrialized animal agriculture has global health benefits that are like borderline existential threat, um, haven't even gotten into climate change, but the other one um, is just if you want to do the most possible good to decrease suffering in the world, um, animal agriculture is, is one area, as Lewis was talking about, just in the United States, um, roughly 8.5 billion to 9 billion chickens, which is significantly more than the global human population, um, animals who are suffering lives that are really beyond any of our worst imagining. So chickens is just one example. They now grow six to seven times as quickly as they would naturally. Um, but their hearts and their lungs and their limbs can't keep up. So they are in chronic pain from the moment they come out of the shell to the moment they're slaughtered. Lewis mentioned that there are two federal laws, um, one of which goes, goes completely unenforced. The one federal law that is enforced is the Humane Slaughter Act. It exempts birds. So birds are routinely have their throats slit open while they're still completely conscious. Um, they're routinely, to the tune of millions a year, literally boiled alive. And of course, other animals feel pain in the same way and to the same degree that we do. So to the degree that we take other animals suffering seriously, uh, getting farm animals out of animal agriculture should be a significant concern for people who are concerned about EA. Thank you. So uh, Lewis mentioned that you used to work for PETA. You've worked in the animal protection field for decades. Now you have transitioned to working on what many would call just technological fixes to the problem that you're describing about animal agriculture. So there's an article today on CNBC, Meet the Vegan Mafia, Secret Group of Investors Betting on the Future of Food. People like you, who are basically animal people, part of this mafia, don't, don't cross Bruce. Uh, but Ryan Bethencourt is uh, one of these folks, and he has a quote in here in which he says, Basically, uh, we've given up on trying to educate people, that they just think that creating companies that can obviate the need for exploitation of animals is better. Have you given up on trying to educate people? Uh, no, and, and I think that uh, <laughs> the secret vegan mafia and CNBC, they really, they get the deep investigative reporting from CNBC, <laughs> they uncovered the secret vegans. Uh, but, uh, but no, I, I think that, uh, I think what we're doing is complementary. 
Um, so there are an awful lot of organizations that are doing education. I think that education is critically important. I think welfare campaigns are critically important. Um, I think we should be putting some significant allocation of resources. So far, it's just the Good Food Institute. Um, I would like to see more organizations, you know, more of the big animal protection organizations and just more organizations jumping into using behavioral economics, using market markets and food technology to address this problem, but I think education is also critically important. Um, one thing that I really, um, another way that I think this works in a complementary way, um, Tobias Leinhart, the vegan strategist, uh, really fantastic blog, which I highly recommend and easy, easily findable if you Google the vegan strategist. And he has a new book out this month. He does. What's it called? How to Create a Vegan World. How to Create a Vegan World. And um, in How to create, create a Vegan World, he talks about how we influence individual behavior change. And in response to the question that you just asked, he points out that right now um, about 2% of the population in the United States is vegetarian or vegan. Uh, 10 years ago, it was 2%. 20 years ago, it was 2%. 30 years ago, it was 2%. Um, and um, so if what we want is a world that rejects speciesism, it's going to be a lot harder to convince people through our educational campaigns to take animal protection seriously, to take anti-speciesism seriously, if they're not leading lives of cognitive dissonance. So if somebody is literally paying to treat animals in ways that would warrant felony cruelty to animals charges if they were protected species, if they were dogs or cats, it's going to be significantly more difficult to, to get them to think about the fact that other animals are made of flesh and blood and bone just like we are, that they feel pain in the same way and to the same degree that we do. And once they're eating plant-based meat or clean meat, because those options are cheaper, um, equally delicious, and convenient, once they shift in that way and they're not participating in the exploitation, it becomes a lot easier uh, to convince them of the anti-speciesist message. The plant-based meats have come a long way in the decades that you were just referring to, and yet still they have virtually no market share, as you often point out, compared to animal-based meats. Unlike plant-based milks, which now are at 10% of the fluid milk market is plant-based in the United States. Why the disparity? Why are plant-based meats not doing anywhere near as well as plant-based milks? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you, yeah, that's a really, I think, critically important point that you look at plant-based milk, and as you said, they're 10% of the milk market. Uh, you look at plant-based meat, and it's uh, last year plant-based meat sold about $500 million dollars which feels significant, right? $500 million, that's a reasonable meat market. And I imagine for most people in this room, um, we have um, probably eaten plant-based meat. And yet it's a quarter of 1% of the $200 billion per year meat market. A quarter of 1%. That's within the margin of error of non-existence. So um, how many people here have had a, a veggie burger in the last couple of days? Yeah, just about everybody. But statistically speaking, that was a figment of your imagination. <laughs> because veggie burgers do not exist. But um, 20 years ago, plant-based milk, I mean, less than 20 years ago, plant-based milk was in exactly the same situation. Plant-based milk was basically nowhere, um, well under a quarter of 1% of the milk market. Um, and what happened was Dean Foods bought White Wave. 
Um, and market moved it, you know, it used to be like oftentimes, um, it would be sort of, you know, covered in dust in the nether regions of the grocery store, um, in the sort of antiseptic packaging with like really unattractive, really unattractive, unattractive antiseptic packaging. Um, indeed foods bought white wave and put it in the milk case and marketed it, um, and created better products and it took off and plant-based meat. Who's Dean foods? Oh, thank you. Yeah, and Dean Foods is one of the is still one of the largest milk producers in the world. And I remember when Dean Foods bought White Wave, um, and vegans took to—I mean, they didn't have Facebook, but vegans were like outraged. Um, and we're going to boycott White Wave, and we're not going to drink silk because we're not going to put money into the animal exploiters' coffers. Um, and from a and, and you look at—I mean, it's ten percent, um, and almost nobody who is buying plant-based milk is buying plant-based milk because they want to get veal calves um, off of, I mean, some people are, but they're the same people who would have bought it even before. So almost none of the 10% um, of plant-based milk as a proportion of the milk market is because of people who have ethical concerns. They're, dr- they're drinking it because it tastes good, it's reasonably priced, it's marketed well, and it's convenient. That's why the vast majority of people are buying it. And in fact, that's borne out by the fact that more than 90% of households that are buying plant-based milk, more than 90% of them are also buying animal-based milk. So I think we can do exactly the same thing with plant-based meat. If you had told me 20 years ago that in 20 years, one of these products would be 10% of the market and the other one would be basically zero, I mean, I would have flipped them uh, because most people think that milk is good for you. Um, and most people, something like 90% of people, think that they should probably cut back at least um, a little bit on animal-based meat. So people thinking strategically in this way, first, that there hasn't been a major player like Dean Foods that's gotten in uh, to plant-based meat and really marketed it right. So you think about Beyond Meat, they only started in 2009, they're thinking this way, but they only started in 2009 and their first national product was 2013. You think about Beyond Meat, I'm sorry, you think about Impossible Foods, and they only started in 2011, and their first product, you know, which they sold in just a couple cities last year, so it took them five years to put the Impossible Burger on the market, and they're thinking in this way, but they're also brand new. So we're, we haven't had sort of the Dean Foods white wave moment, and we have only, as a sort of plant-based meat movement, been thinking sort of focused on competing with animal agriculture for a very brief period of time. So most of the people in plant-based meat, until fairly recently, they have been content to simply compete with other plant-based meat and to market to vegetarians and vegans. So along come people like Josh Tetrick at Hampton Creek Foods, um, Ethan Brown at Beyond Meat, Pat Brown at Impossible Foods, and they're saying, no, we can use food technology and markets to take on industrialized animal agriculture. But that's only been the man- mentality of plant-based meat for a, and plant-based other products for a pretty brief period of time. So you noted there isn't a Dean Foods yet that has decided to swoop in and either start its own plant-based meat or buy one of the companies in the way that Dean uh, bought White Wave. Is there interest among them? I know that you talk to a lot of the big wigs in the meat industry. Is there interest among them to actually do this? Uh, there's tremendous interest. Um, so all of the sort of largest food conglomerates are at least thinking about it um, and looking at it. And it was pretty interesting. Um, I worked with Jacob Bungie from the Wall Street Journal on the, the launch article for Memphis Meats, Clean Meat, uh, in early February 2016, so early February last year. Um, and he said to me, what does the meat industry think of this? And I said, well, our hope, everything that we've seen 
indicates that they're really interested in it, and to the degree they've taken a stand, it's a supportive stand. And in fact, Meeting Place Magazine, it's spelled M-E-A-T, so Meeting Place Magazine, it's a big meat industry trade group. The editor's letter, a little over a year ago, the editor's letter, like, you know, so everybody in the media had Jim Perdue on the cover, um, and you open it up, and the first thing people are reading is the editor's letter basically encouraging the meat industry to see itself as protein supply. And it specifically talked about Beyond Meat and Mosa Meats um, and some of the other plant-based and clean meat companies. And it said, basically, there's nothing about the meat industry that dictates that we have farms and slaughterhouses. If there's a better way to create meat using plants or using the clean meat technologies, we should do that. And so I mentioned this to, to Bungie at the Wall Street Journal and said, our hope is that the meat industry will be on the forefront of this because who better uh, to do plant-based or to do plant-based or clean meat chicken than Purdue and Tyson? Who better to do a plant-based or a clean meat spam? Aren't we all excited about that? Uh, than Hormel Foods. Um, and what he found was there was not antipathy. Like he called Purdue and Tyson and Hormel and some of the other companies. Um, and he had to go pretty far out of his way to find anybody who wasn't sympathetic to the concept. So uh, my expectation is that as the products get better and as the prices come down, we're going to see the meat industry. We started at GFI talking about um, disrupting animal agriculture. And now we talk about transforming animal agriculture because our hope is that it will just be a steady shift. Uh, both you and I have mentioned plant-based and queen meats. For the uninitiated, is there a difference between the two? If so, what is it, and why call them queen? Um, so, uh, so plant-based meat, um, Ethan Brown, um, in his sort of standard Beyond Meat stump speech, he says, look, meat is made out of constituent parts. It's made out of amino acids and lipids and minerals and water. And there is nothing in meat that we can't make with plants. So Ethan Brown at Beyond Meat and Pat Brown at Impossible Foods, no relation between the two guys, um, they balk at the idea of referring to fake meat um, or meat substitutes. This is meat, but it's made from plants. That's the focus. Um, clean meat is meat. It's real meat. So it's actually like if you're eating clean meat chicken or clean meat fish or clean meat pork or clean meat beef, it is exactly the same thing as the meat that you would get from a factory farm or a slaughterhouse, except that it's made in a different way. So what happens right now is you grow massive amounts of crops and you feed them to farm animals and the farm animals act as an extraordinarily inefficient machine in which they grow. So their cells multiply um, and grow, and then eventually you slaughter them, and you eat the cells, massive numbers of them. Um, with clean meat, what you do is you take a biopsy the size of a sesame seed from a chicken or a pig or a cow, whatever species of, of meat you're going to be creating. Um, you bathe the cells in nutrients. The cells multiply and grow. Uh, you do that on a scaffold in essentially a meat fermenter. That's what it looks like at scale. Um, and then you harvest the meat, and no animals have to die. It is a significantly less um, inefficient process, causes up to 95% less climate change. Clean meat is for, for sort of two reasons. One, it's a nod to clean energy. So clean energy is energy that doesn't have the same level of adverse environmental impact. Uh, clean meat is meat that doesn't have the same level of adverse environmental impact. It's also just literally cleaner. So once you take the uh, cell multiplication process out of the industrial farm and out of the slaughterhouse, 
you have significantly less bacterial contamination. According to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, there are tens of millions of sicknesses every single year from contaminated meat. There are tens of thousands of hospitalizations, and there are thousands of deaths. All of that goes away because you don't have the bacterial contamination. You also don't have the antibiotic residues or any of the other drug residues. So it's clean uh, because it's environmentally better, and it's clean because it's literally clean. Cool. So um, a lot of people, both in this room and in the EA community and beyond, are, are totally going whole hog or, I guess, really no hog on plant-based meats, right? But there are some who are pretty smart, um, including Open Philanthropy Project, who have looked at this and have concluded that they think that some of the cellular agriculture products, like for milk and eggs, are pretty commercially viable, but that there's a much tougher road to hoe on clean meat, actually, not on physically producing it, but getting it up to a cost and scale that can be competitive with animal meat. How do you respond to those skeptics like those who say, clean meat, it's just a distant dream from now? Um, well, the people, who have the, the people who have the most clear-eyed vision of this question um, are Uma Valetti and Mark Post, the two sort of pioneers in clean meat. So Mark Post is the guy at Maastricht University. He's a former tenured medical school professor at Harvard Medical School. He left Harvard Medical School to go to one of the top medical schools in Europe. He is uh, both a doctor um, and a PhD in tissue engineering, um, got a million dollars to create the first clean meat hamburger uh, from Sergey Brin. So there's Mark Post, and then his U.S. counterpart is Uma Valetti, who founded the company Memphis Meats, um, also a medical doctor, a cardiologist who trained at the Mayo Clinic. Um, he was the head of both the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association for the Twin Cities. Um, and he left all of that behind um, and moved to the Bay Area to found Memphis Meats. So he burned his bridges in sort of VC parlance. Um, and these two guys have basically put their entire lives on the line to do these, to, to devote themselves to the clean meat technology. These two guys who could have done really just anything um, with their lives. And, and their belief on the basis of a very deep dive understanding of the science is that we will have clean meat at fairly high price points, probably um, about on par with grass-fed organic beef in about five years. And we will have clean meat that's cost-competitive with cheap chicken in about 10 years. And when GFI first started looking at this issue, so we were the Good Food Institute was founded um, on February 1st of 2016. We started working on the organization in October of 2015. And the Good Food Institute mission is markets and food technology to transform animal agriculture. And our goal is that if X is plant-based meat and Y is clean meat, we want X plus Y to equal 100 as quickly as possible. And we are agnostic on whether X is 100 and Y is zero or it's 50-50 or whatever else. So when we hired um, our scientists to start diving into this issue, um, what I said to them was, if clean meat is not viable, um, we shouldn't work on it. Um, and that continues to be our stance. If we decide that clean meat is not viable, if we come to agree with uh, with with the person at Open Philanthropy who wrote that paper. Who is not Lewis Bollard, for the record. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that Lewis, Lewis Bollard has used his position in uh, EA funds to steer some money toward clean meat, which I'm pretty excited by. Uh, a little smackdown at OPP. But... Um, in any event, so... so um, 
as our scientists dive into the technology of clean meat, and as they learn more and more about it, they get more and more excited by its prospects. So um, as with many things at GFI, we have like an incredibly long task list. Um, one of our scientists, Liz Specht, who's sort of leading the effort to do the due diligence technological assessment of clean meat, she has been meeting with venture capital funds. She met with the Gates Foundation a couple days ago. She's met with Anderson Horowitz, DFJ, um, Kleiner Perkins, a lot of the biggest Silicon Valley funds, and she's meeting with them to educate them about why we're optimistic on clean meat, and we will be turning that into a white paper um, which we will be posting online and sharing widely. If uh, if not for some sort of um, temporal considerations, we would have liked to have had the white paper out first, um, but for a variety of reasons, those meetings needed to happen sooner. Uh, but our expectation is that once we once we get the white paper out and once we get a full cost of goods analysis put together, I mean, maybe it'll turn out that we're wrong, uh, but based on everything that we know so far, um, our expectation is that a lot of people who have been dubious up to now, including OPP, um, our hope is that uh, that our analysis will convince them, or maybe they'll convince us. You know, we're um, we don't think so on the basis of what we know, but we're open to it. Uh, final question for me before we turn it over to our esteemed crowd. Um, so, plant-based meat is at zero point two five percent of the U.S. market. Clean meat is at zero point zero percent of the U.S. market. Ten years from now, what does GFI predict the total of X plus Y will be? Just a prediction. So we. Um, I need to talk about uh, so so if it's it is 0.25 now um, and clean meat is 0.0 now. Um, if we grow um, and close the gap at 20 percent per year, um, in about 10 years we're only a little over one percent, but in 35 years we're at 100 percent. So I think we can do better than that. So I think in 10 years, I mean, I think we can do a trajectory similar to the plant-based milk trajectory. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement. There's actual nonprofit money in this endeavor. Um, so I think in 10 years, we can probably be 5 to 10%. Um, and if we are at 5 to 10% in 10 years, then by 2035, which is when Pat Brown predicts that we will be 100% plant-based, Pat Brown from Impossible Foods says 100% plant-based by 2035. If we can get to 5 to 10% um, in 10 years, I think by 2035, we can be 100% plant-based or clean. All right. So you heard it here first, the new GFI fundraising campaign, 10 by 10, 10% by, 20, by 10 years from now, right? Oh, yeah. You can donate now. Okay. Um, you can make it happen. Uh, so let's turn it over. We have about five minutes left for questions and answers. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. If you want to be able to ask the Bruce Friedrich a question, we're going to go one, two, three. So we'll start with our friend in, who looks like a white sweater. Close, exactly. Okay. Hi, um, I just have a question. So I guess similar to you know clean energy and moving towards clean energy, coal miners, for example, are pretty about losing jobs. Do you see a similar factor? Do you anticipate a similar trend in food? And how do you address that? And I'm just going to caution you since we have so little time. If we could, there's a lot of people with questions to, you know, keep it moving. Paul, uh, I mean, it is the nature of capitalism and the nature of technology that there are disruptions, and a part of that is, is disruptions in the workforce. Um, I think we would be hard-pressed to see a greater consolidation of agriculture than has existed simply by agriculture 
um, adopting the go big or go home motto over the last couple of decades. So, I mean, one, there will be some disruption. Two, it won't be as much as we've seen over the last couple of decades because it just can't be. Um, and then three, if you look at the jobs that will be disrupted, they're really not jobs that are worth having for the most part. There's a phenomenal book um, called uh, The Meat Racket by Daniel Leonard. Christopher Leonard, thank you, um, who was a, an Associated Press agricultural reporter for decades uh, that talks about what chicken farming looks like today. Um, there have been a couple of remarkable exposés by the human by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International that look at how hideous slaughterhouse workers uh, the job is of the slaughterhouse worker today. So uh, there will be disruption, there will be changes, but hopefully those changes will be good rather than bad. Bad. One thing that the Good Food Institute is doing, we're, we're working with the um, Dry Lentil and Pea Association and working with farmers to try to shift, to transition more and more farmers um, toward dry peas and lentils uh, with a view toward um, creating more and better plant-based meat. One of the really interesting things about plant-based meat is the degree to which right, the crops off, haven't man. been... There's nothing more interesting on this one. No, there really uh, isn't. <laughs> All right, we're going to... Raise your hand if you still have a question. There was one, You're two, not getting the dry pea and lentil answer, and you and are missing got, out. Talk to, me at, here. talk to me we're, afterwards about dry peas and lentils. We got one, two, three... We've got one, two, three, four, lightning round. All right. Um, I'm from the UK, where, where I grew up. Burger was like, I don't know, it's the cheapest thing your parents can take. Like, or, with your pocket money, it's the cheapest thing you can try. And uh, on another day, a couple of days ago, we come to the summit, and I found a restaurant nearby that sold the impossible burger. I thought, well, give that a try. It was 20 bucks. And I could not think of any reason why I could sell that to any of my friends whatsoever. Yeah, it tasted great. You'll be pleased to know that Beyond Burger is three bucks, so we're, we're going in right. a good direction. My, my question was, how are these things going to get marketed to the people, the working class people, who are just going to get a big mark for a couple bucks? Yeah, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right that right now, um, one of the issues, one of the reasons that plant-based meat has not grown more than it's grown is that it is too expensive, and I think the, the Impossible Burger is probably sort of exhibit A on that. I will say that, that Pat Brown, the founder of the of Impossible Burger, uh, the Impossible Foods, the company, um, his plan, goal, um, and he's completely sincere, is that it will be cheaper um, than the cheapest meat and they're doing chicken and pork and beef um, and the range of meats and his plan is that it will that it will be cheaper it's very early days i mean they've just opened a plant so they can sell it for that and they are selling it for that their marketing philosophy also is to go top down so you can introduce something that is expensive and then move down but it's a lot harder to introduce something that's cheap and then move up um, so my question is kind of on speciesism. Do you feel that clean meat is a good response to that issue when, I guess, I can't really see us biopsying a human and recreating their flesh in a lab for consumption? I guess I still kind of have an issue with that. I guess has that been something that you've considered? Yeah, I mean, when you think about speciesism, there are obviously an awful lot of things that people who are opposed to speciesism grant that just because of reality um, we have to be open to with animals that we wouldn't be open to um, with human beings. And maybe it's that we're not rational in the way that we think about human beings, or maybe it's that we're not rational in the way that we think about animals. It seems to me that there is a significant portion of the population that is going to insist on eating meat 
And if you can do it in a way that doesn't cause animals to suffer, that's something that we should celebrate. If it turns out that clean meat is unsuccessful because plant-based meat is so wildly successful, or even that plant-based meat is unsuccessful because a whole foods plant-based diet is so wildly successful, um, nobody will be more thrilled than we are. But um, this, this seems like something that uh, is critically important for animals. Uh, what policy ideas do you have for increasing the speed of development, popularization, or availability of plant-based or clean meats? Um, so at the Good Food Institute, we have both a policy director um, and we have a lobbyist, the world's first um, plant-based and clean meat lobbyist, which we're kind of happy about. Um, and one of the things that the lobbyist, well, the policy director is working on the regulatory space and the lobbyist is working and is meeting with great enthusiasm on both sides of the aisle. So there is enthusiasm from the Progressive Caucus, which is the far left of the Democrats, uh, to the Freedom Caucus, which is the far right of the Republicans, uh, for using markets and food technology to solve the problems of industrialized animal agriculture. Once you start talking about markets slash capitalism and technology, food technology, uh, pretty much everybody gets on board. So one of the things that we're working on um, is getting some of the money that's allocated to the National Science Foundation and or uh, the USDA or really sort of any aspects of the government that are solving some of the problems that a shift away from industrialized animal agriculture solves, getting some of that money allocated to research and development for plant-based and clean meat. And we were successful in getting um, into the markup of the Senate Agricultural Committee. We got some language um, encouraging the development of legumes um, for plant-based meat. And that was on the basis of a couple of months of work. Um, so our, our expectation is that we'll be able to, that, I mean, it seems like something that's probably going to be successful. And we're um, excited to put more more energy into it. We'd our like final to see that question. happening internationally. Our final questioner right up here. Which one of you had your hand raised? Yes, over here. I'm sorry. Um, so I run a company in the space, and so a lot of what you're great. About What's your company? Spiro. We grow algae, um, oh. algae technology. Um, so one of my questions to you is the uh, kind of impact of local versus industrialized agriculture, and how that really impacts emissions, and then the appeal of like genetic engineering as a technology. Like, will there ever be a time that I go to a local meat brewery uh, to get a burger? <coughs> Um, well, that's the vision. Uh, the local meat brewery or the big meat brewery, either way. Um, I mean, that 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 is what I think will happen. So, um, one of the one of the big advantages of of both plant based meat and clean meat is is simple transparency. So, with plant based meat and clean meat, they'll be live streaming the production processes on the internet. Whereas with animal-based meat, they're literally passing laws to make it illegal to find out what happens in these places. So I think with plant-based meat and clean meat, you're going to see basically the same sort of market variance that you have with animal-based meat. There will be the very small-scale, you know, your friendly neighborhood meat brewery, um, and then there'll be Anheuser-Busch, um, and you will you will make the decision about which one which one you want to support. Uh, before we adjourn, I want to note that uh, Bruce has a book that is coming out on January 2nd that he co-authored with Kathy Freston, so check that out. It's going to be a big bestseller, I'm sure. 
and Paul has a book that is, uh, has almost the exact same title, and his book is actually relevant to this discussion. Uh, Paul has written a phenomenal book. Uh, it's being published by Simon & Schuster. It is called Clean Meat. I don't remember what comes after the colon. What comes after the colon? Uh, it is literally the book on clean meat, meaning the only book on clean meat. We really appreciate all of you coming to this talk. Please give it up for Bruce Friedrich. <laughs> and Paul Shapiro. Thank you.